Section 4 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 8, Great Rulers, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Queen Elizabeth, Part 2. The next great service which Elizabeth rendered to England was a development of its resources, ever a primal effort with wise statesmen, with such administrators as Sully, Colbert, Richelieu. The policy of her government was not the policy of aggrandizement in war, which has ever provoked jealousies and hatreds in other nations, and led to dangerous combinations, and sowed the seed of future wars. The policy of Napoleon was retaliated in the conquests of Prussia in our day, and the policy of Prussia may yet lead to its future dismemberment, in spite of the imperial realm shaped by Bismarck. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again an eternal law, binding both individuals and nations, from which there is no escape. The government of Elizabeth did not desire or aim at foreign conquests, the great error of European statesmen on the continent. It sought the establishment of the monarchy at home, and the development of the various industries of the nation, since in these industries are both power and wealth. Commerce was encouraged, and she girt her island around with those wooden walls which have proved England's impregnable defense against every subsequent combination of tyrants and conquerors. The East India Company was formed, and the fisheries of Newfoundland established. It was under Elizabeth's auspices that Frobisher penetrated to the Polar Sea, that Sir Francis Drake circumnavigated the globe, that Sir Walter Raleigh colonized Virginia and that Sir Humphrey Gilbert attempted to discover a northwestern passage to India. Manufactories were set up for serges, so that wool was no longer exported, but the raw material was consumed at home. A colony of Flemish weavers was planted in the heart of England. The prosperity of dyers and cloth dressers and weavers dates from this reign, although some attempts at manufactures were made in the reign of Edward III. A refuge was given to persecuted foreigners, and work was found for them to do. Pasture land was converted to tillage, not, as is now the case, to parks for the wealthy classes. Labor was made respectable, and enterprise of all kinds was stimulated. Wealth was sought in industry and economy, rather than in mines of gold and silver, so that wealth was doubled during this reign, and the population increased from four millions to six millions. All the old debts of the crown were paid, both principal and interest, and the debased coin was called in at a great sacrifice to the royal revenue. The arbitrary management of commerce by foreign merchants was broken up, and weights and measures were duly regulated. The queen did not revoke monopolies, it is true. The principles of political economy were not then sufficiently understood. But even monopolies, which disgraced the old Roman world, and are a disgrace to any age, were not so gigantic and demoralizing in those times as in our own, under our free institutions. They were not used to corrupt legislation and bribe judges and prevent justice, but simply to enrich politicians and favorites, and as a reward for distinguished services. Justice in the courts was impartially administered. There was security to property and punishment for crime. No great culprits escaped conviction, nor, when convicted, were they allowed to purchase, with their stolen wealth, the immunities of freedom. The laws were not a mockery, as in Republican-born, 
where demagogues had the ascendancy and prepared the way for usurpation and tyranny. All the expenses of the government were managed economically, so much so that the Queen herself received from Parliament for forty years only an average grant of £65,000 a year. She disliked to ask money from the commons, and they granted subsidies with extreme reluctance. The result was that between the two the greatest economy was practiced, and the people were not overburdened by taxation. Elizabeth hated and detested war as the source of all calamities, and never embarked upon it except under compulsion. All her wars were virtually defensive, to maintain the honor, safety, and dignity of the nation. She did not even seek to recover Calais, which the French had held for three hundred years, although she took Havre to gain a temporary foothold for her troops. She did not strive for military eclat or foreign possessions in Europe, feeling that the strength of England, like the ancient Jewish commonwealth, was in the cultivation of the peaceful virtues, and yet she made war when it became imperative. She gave free audience to her subjects, paid attention to all petitions, and was indefatigable in business. She made her own glory identical with the prosperity of the realm, and if she did not rule by the people, she ruled for the people, as enlightened and patriotic monarchs ever have ruled. It is indisputable that the whole nation loved her and honored her to the last, even when disappointments had saddened her and the intoxicating delusions of life had been dispelled. She bestowed honors and benefits with frankness and cordiality. She ever sought to base her authority on the affections of the people, the only support even of absolute thrones. She was ever ready with a witticism, a smile, and a pleasant word. Though she gave vent to peevishness and irritability when crossed, and even would swear before her ministers and courtiers in private, yet in public she disguised her resentments and always appeared dignified and graceful, so that the people, when they saw her majestic manners, or heard her loving speeches, or beheld her mounted at the head of armies, or shining unrivaled in grand festivals, or listened to her learning on public occasions, such as when she extemporized Latin orations at Oxford, were filled with pride and admiration, and were ready to expose their lives in her service. The characteristic excellence of Elizabeth's reign, as it seems to me, was good government. She had extraordinary executive ability, directed to all matters of public interest. Her government was not marked by great and brilliant achievements, but by perpetual vigilance, humanity, economy, and liberal policy. There were no destructive or wasting wars, no passion for military glory, no successions of court follies, no extravagance in palace building, no egotistical aims and pleasures such as marked the reign of Louis the Fourteenth which cut the sinews of national strength, impoverished the nobility, disheartened the people, and sowed the seeds of future revolution. That modern Nebuchadnezzar spent on one palace forty million pounds, while Elizabeth spent on all her palaces, processions, journeys, carriages, servants, and dresses sixty-five thousand pounds a year. She was indeed fond of visiting her subjects, and perhaps subjected her nobles to a burdensome hospitality. But the Earl of Leicester could well afford three hundred and sixty-five hogsheads of beer when he entertained the Queen at Kenilworth, since he was rich enough to fortify his castle with ten thousand men. Nor was it difficult for the Earl of Derby to feast the royal party, when his domestic servants numbered two hundred and forty. She may have exacted presents on her birthday, but the courtiers who gave her laces and ruffs and jewelry received monopolies in return. 
the most common charge against elizabeth as a sovereign is that she was arbitrary and tyrannical nor can she be wholly exculpated from this charge her reign was despotic so far as the constitution would allow but it was despotism according to the laws under her reign the people had as much liberty as at any preceding period of english history she did not encroach on the constitution the constitution and the precedents of the past gave her the star chamber and the high commission court and the disposal of monopolies and the absolute command of the military and naval forces but these great prerogatives she did not abuse in her direst necessities she never went beyond the laws and seldom beyond the wishes of the people it is expecting too much of sovereigns to abdicate their own powers except upon compulsion and still more to increase the political power of the people the most illustrious sovereigns have never parted willingly with their own prerogatives did the antonines or theodosius or charlemagne or frederick the second the emperor of russia may emancipate serfs from a dictate of humanity but he did not give them political power for fear that it might be turned against the throne the sovereign people of america may give political equality to their old slaves and invite them to share in the legislation of great interests it is in accordance with that theory of abstract rights which rousseau the creator of the french revolution propounded which gospel of rights was accepted by jefferson and franklin the monarchs of the world have their own opinions about the political rights of those whom they deem ignorant or inexperienced instead of proceeding to enlarge the bounds of popular liberties they prefer to fall back on established duties elizabeth had this preference but she did not attempt to take away what liberties the people already had in encouraging the principles of the reformation she became their protector against catholic priests and feudal nobles it is not quite just to stigmatize the government of elizabeth as a despotism a despotism is a regime supported by military force based on an army with power to tax the people without their consent like the old rule of the caesars like that of louis the fourteenth and peter the great and even of napoleon now elizabeth never had a standing army of any size when the country was threatened by spain she threw herself into the arms of the militia upon the patriotism and generosity of her people nor could she tax the people without the consent of parliament which by a fiction was supposed to represent the people while in reality it only represented the wealthy classes parliament possessed the power to cripple her and was far less generous to her than it was to queen victoria she was headed off by both the nobles and by the representatives of the wealthy powerful and aristocratic commons she had great prerogatives and great private wealth palaces parks and arbitrary courts but she could not go against the laws of the realm without endangering her throne which she was wise enough and strong enough to keep in spite of all her enemies both at home and abroad had she been a man she might have turned out a tyrant and a usurper she might have increased the royal prerogatives like richelieu she might have made wars like louis the fourteenth she might have ground down the people like her successor james but she understood the limits of her power and did not seek to go beyond thereby proving herself as wise as she was mighty by most historical writers elizabeth is severely censured for the execution of mary queen of scots and i think with justice i am not making a special plea in favor of elizabeth hiding her defects and exaggerating her virtues but simply seeking to present her character and deeds according to the verdict of enlightened ages 
it was a cruel and repulsive act to take away the life of a relative and a woman and a queen under any pretense whatever unless the sparing of her life would endanger the security of the sovereign and the peace of the realm mary was the granddaughter of margaret tudor sister of henry the eighth and was the lawful successor of mary the eldest daughter of henry the eighth on the principle of legitimacy she had a title to the throne superior to elizabeth herself and the succession of princes has ever been determined by this but mary was a catholic to say nothing of her levities or crimes and had been excluded by the nation for that very reason if there was injustice done to her it was in not allowing her claim to succeed mary that she felt that elizabeth was a usurper and that the english throne belonged by right to her i do not doubt it was natural that she should seek to regain her rights if she should survive elizabeth her claims as the rightful successor could not be well set aside that in view of these facts elizabeth was jealous of mary i do not doubt and that this jealousy was one great cause of her hostility is probable the execution of mary stuart because she was a catholic or because she excited fear or jealousy is utterly indefensible all that the english nation had a right to do was to set her succession aside because she was a catholic and would undo the work of the reformation she had a right to her religion and the nation also had a right to prevent its religion from being overturned or jeopardized i do not believe however that mary's life endangered either the throne or the religion of england so long as she was merely queen of scotland hence i look upon her captivity as cruel and her death as a crime she was destroyed as the male children of the hebrews were destroyed by pharaoh as a sultan murders his nephews from fear from a cold and cruel state policy against all the higher laws of morality the crime of elizabeth doubtless has palliations she was urged by her ministers and by the protestant part of the nation to commit this great wrong on the plea of necessity to secure the throne against a catholic successor and the nation from embarrassments plots and rebellions it is an undoubted fact that mary even after her imprisonment in england was engaged in perpetual intrigues that she was leagued with jesuits and hostile powers and kept elizabeth in continual irritation and the nation in constant alarm and it is probable that had she succeeded elizabeth she would have destroyed all that was dear to the english heart that glorious reformation effected by so many labors and sacrifices therefore she was immolated to the spirit of the times for reasons of expediency and apparent state necessity that she conspired against the government of elizabeth and possibly against her life was generally supposed that she was a bitter enemy cannot be questioned how far elizabeth can be exculpated on the principle of self-defense cannot well be ascertained scotch historians do not generally accept the reputed facts of mary's guilt but if she sought the life of elizabeth and was likely to attain so bloody an end as was generally feared then elizabeth has great excuses for having sanctioned the death of her rival so the beautiful and interesting mary dies a martyr to her cause a victim of royal and national jealousy paying the penalty for alleged crimes against the state and the throne had elizabeth herself during the life of her sister mary been guilty of half they proved against the queen of scots she would have been most summarily executed but elizabeth was wise and prudent and waited for her time mary stuart was imprudent and rash her character in spite of her fascinations and accomplishments was full of follies infidelities and duplicities she is supposed to have been an adulteress and a murderess she was unfortunate in her administration of scotland 
She was ruled by wicked favorites and foreign influence. She was not patriotic or lofty or earnest. She did what she could to root out Protestantism in Scotland, and kept her own realm in constant trouble. She had winning manners and graceful accomplishments. She was doubtless an intellectual woman. She had courage, presence of mind, tact, intelligence. She could ride and dance well. But with these accomplishments, she had qualities which made her dangerous and odious. If she had not been executed, she would have been execrated. But her sufferings and unfortunate death appealed to the heart of the world, and I would not find against popular affections and sympathies. Though she committed great crimes and follies, and was supposed to be dangerous to the religion and liberties of England, she died a martyr, as Charles I died, and Louis the Sixteenth, the victim of great necessities and great animosities. The execution of Essex is another of the popular rather than serious charges against Elizabeth. He had been her favorite. He was a generous, gifted, and accomplished man. Therefore, it is argued, he ought to have been spared." but he was caught with arms in his hands. He was a traitor to the throne which enriched him, and the nation which flattered him. He was at the head of foolish rebellion, and therefore he died, died like Montmorency in the reign of Henry the Fourth, like Bassompierre, like Norfolk in Northumberland, because he had committed high treason and defied the laws. Why should Elizabeth spare such a culprit? No former friendship, no chivalrous qualities, no array of past services, ever can offset the crime of treason and rebellion, especially in unsettled times, and Elizabeth would have been worse than weak had she spared so great a criminal, both according to the laws and precedents of England, and the verdict of enlightened civilization. We may compassionate the fate of Essex, but he was rash, giddy, and irritated, and we feel that he deserved his punishment." The other charges brought against Elizabeth pertain to her as a woman rather than a sovereign. They say that she was artful, dissembling, parsimonious, jealous, haughty, and masculine. Very likely, and what then? Who claimed that she was perfect any more than other great sovereigns whom on the whole we praise? These faults, too, may have been the result of her circumstances rather than native traits of character. Surrounded with spies and enemies, she was obliged to hide her thoughts and her plans. Irritated by treason and rebellions, she may have given vent to unseemly anger. Flattered beyond all example, she may have been vain and ostentatious. Possessed of great power, she may have been arbitrary. Crippled by Parliament, she may have nursed her resources. Compelled to give to everything, she may have been parsimonious. Slandered by her enemies, she may have been resentful. Annoyed by wrangling sects, she may have too strenuously paraded her high church principles. But all these things we lose sight of in the undoubted virtues, abilities, and services of this great queen. Historians have other work than to pick out spots on the sun. The dark spot, if there is one upon Elizabeth's character, was her coquetry in private life. It is impossible to tell whether or not she exceeded the bounds of womanly virtue. She was probably slandered and vilified by treacherous, gossiping ambassadors who were foes to her person and her kingdom, and who made as ugly reports of her as possible to their royal masters. I am sorry that these malicious accusations have been raked out of the ashes of the past by modern historians, whose literary fame rests on bringing to light what is new rather than what is true. The character of a woman and a queen so admired and honored in her day should be sacred from the stings of sensational writers who poison their darts from the archives of bitter foreign enemies. 
the gallant men of genius whom elizabeth admired and honored as a bright and intellectual woman naturally would especially when deprived of the felicities of wedded life never presumed i have charity to believe beyond an undignified partiality and an admiring friendship when essex stood highest in her favor she was nearly seventy years of age there are no undoubted facts which criminate her nothing but gossip and the malice of foreign spies what a contrast her private life was to that of her mother anne boleyn or to that of mary queen of scots or even to that of the great catherine of russia she had indeed great foibles and weaknesses she was inordinately fond of dress she was sensitive to her own good looks she was jealous of pretty women she was vain and susceptible to flattery she was irritable when crossed she gave way to sallies of petulance and anger she occasionally used language unbecoming her station and authority she could dissimulate and hide her thoughts but her nature was not hypocritical or false or mean she was just honest straightforward in her ordinary dealings she was patriotic enlightened and magnanimous she loved learning and learned men she had at heart the best interests of her subjects she was true to her cause surely these great virtues which it is universally admitted she possessed should more than balance her defects and weaknesses see how tender-hearted she was when required to sign death warrants and what grief she manifested when essex proved unworthy of her friendship see her love of children her readiness of sympathy her fondness for society all feminine qualities in a woman who is stigmatized as masculine as she perhaps was in her mental structure in her habits of command and aptitude for business a strong-minded woman at the worst yet such a woman as was needed on a throne especially in stormy times and in a rude state of society and when we pass from her private character to her public services by which the great are judged how exalted her claims to the world's regard where do we find a greater or better queen contrast her with other female sovereigns with isabella who with all her virtues favored the inquisition with her sister mary who kindled the fires of smithfield with catherine de medici who sounded the tocsin of saint bartholomew with mary of scotland who was a partner in the murder of her husband with anne of austria who ruled through italian favorites with christiana of sweden who scandalized europe by her indecent eccentricities with anne of great britain ruled by the duchess of marlborough there are only two great sovereigns with whom she can be compared catherine the second of russia and maria theresa of germany illustrious like elizabeth for courage and ability but catherine was the slave of infamous passions and maria theresa was a party to the partition of poland compared with these even the english queen appears immeasurably superior they may have wielded more power but their moral influence was less it is not the greatness of a country which gives greatness to its exalted characters washington ruled our empire in its infancy and buchanan with all its majestic resources yet who is dearest to the heart of the world no countries ever produce greater benefactors than palestine and greece when their limits were scarcely equal to one of our states the fame of burley burns brighter than that of the most powerful of modern statesmen the names of alexander hamilton and daniel webster may outshine the glories of any statesman who shall arise in this great country for a hundred years to come elizabeth ruled a little island but her memory and deeds are as immortal as the fame of pericles or marcus aurelius 
and the fame of England's great queen rests on the influence which radiated from her character, as well as upon the power she wielded with so much wisdom and ability. Influence is greater than power in the lapse of ages. Politicians may wield power for a time, but the great statesmen, like Burke and Canning, live in their ideas. Warriors and kings and ministers of kings have power, but poets and philosophers have influence, for their ideas go coursing round the world until they have changed governments and institutions for better or for worse. Like those of Paul, of Socrates, of Augustine, of Dante, of Shakespeare, of Bacon, yea, of Rousseau. Some few favored rulers and leaders of men have had both power and influence, like Moses, Alfred, and Washington and elizabeth belongs to this class her influence was for good and it permeated english life and society like that of victoria whose power was small as a queen however more than a woman elizabeth is one of the great names of history i have some respect for the critical verdict of francis bacon the greatest man of his age if we except shakespeare and one of the greatest men in the history of all nations what does he say he knew her well, perhaps as well as any modern historian. He says, She was a princess, that if Plutarch were now alive to write by parables, it would puzzle him to find her equal among women. She was endowed with learning most singular and rare, and as for her government, I do affirm that England never had forty-five years of better times, and this not through the calmness of the season, but the wisdom of her regimes. When we consider the establishment of religion and the constant peace of the country, the good administration of justice, the flourishing state of learning, the increase of wealth, and the general prosperity, amid differences in religion, the troubles of neighboring nations, the ambition of Spain, and the opposition of home, I could not have chosen a more remarkable combination of learning in the prince with the felicity of the people. I can add nothing to this comprehensive verdict. It covers the whole ground so that for virtues and abilities, in spite of all defects, I challenge attention to this virgin queen. I love to dwell on her courage, her fortitude, her prudence, her wisdom, her patriotism, her magnanimity, her executive ability, and more, on the exalted services she rendered to her country and to civilization. These invest her name with a halo of glory which shall blaze through all the ages, even as the great men who surrounded her throne have made her name illustrious. The Elizabethan era is justly regarded as the brightest in English history, not for the number of its great men, or the magnificence of its great enterprises, or the triumphs of its great discoveries and inventions, but because there were then born the great ideas which constitute the strength and beauty of our proud civilization, and because then the grandest questions which pertain to religion, government, literature, and social life were first agitated, with the freshness and earnestness of a revolutionary age. The men of that period were a constellation of original thinkers. We still point with admiration to the political wisdom of Cecil, to the sagacity of Walsingham, to the varied accomplishments of Raleigh, to the chivalrous graces of Sidney, to the bravery of Hawkins and Nottingham, to the bold enterprises of Drake and Frobisher, to the mercantile integrity and financial skill of Gresham, to the comprehensive intellect of Parker, to the scholarship of Ashcombe, to the eloquence of Jewell, to the profundity of Hooker, to the vast attainment and original genius of Bacon, to the rich fancy of Spencer, 
to the almost inspired insight of shakespeare towering above all the poets of ancient and of modern times as fresh to-day as he was three hundred years ago the greatest miracle of intellect that perhaps has ever adorned the world by all these illustrious men queen elizabeth was honored and beloved all received no small share of their renown from her glorious appreciation all were proud to revolve around her as a central sun giving life and growth to every great enterprise in her day and shedding a light which shall gladden unborn generations it is something that a woman has earned such fame and in a sphere which has been supposed to belong to man alone and if men shall here and there be found to decry her greatness let no woman be found who shall seek to dethrone her from her lofty pedestal for in so doing she unwittingly becomes a detractor from that womanly greatness in which we should all rejoice and which thus far has so seldom been seen in exalted stations for my part the more i study history the more i reverence this great sovereign and i am proud that such a woman has lived and reigned and died in honor authorities franz history of england hume's history of england agnes strickland's queens of england mrs jameson's memoirs of queen elizabeth e lodge's sketch of elizabeth g p r james's memoir of elizabeth encyclopedia britannica article on england hallam's constitutional history of england age of elizabeth in dublin review eighty one british quarterly review volume four hundred twelve aiken's court of elizabeth bensley's elizabeth and her times court of elizabeth in westminster review thirty nine two hundred eighty one character of elizabeth in dublin university review forty two hundred sixteen England of Elizabeth in Edinburgh Review, 146, 199. Favorites of Queen Elizabeth in Quarterly Review, 95, 207. Reign of Elizabeth in London Quarterly Review, 22, 158. Youth of Elizabeth in Temple Bar Magazine, 59, 451. And Elizabeth and Mary Stuart, 10, 190. Blackwood's Magazine, 101, 389. End of Section 4.